You can grab your Bible and open up to Genesis 28. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are walking from the front to the back, and they would love to put a Bible in your hand. So you can uh, put your hand up if you don't have a Bible, then we'll get a Bible across to you. And if you don't own a Bible, just keep this. It's our gift to you today. We would love to give you a copy of God's Word, and uh, we pray that it would be a blessing to you even as we open it now together and study it and, uh, and meet with God through His Word we're still kind of on the, the tail end here of the, the uh, anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And, um, and Martin Luther, who famously, obviously, um, ignited the Protestant Reformation by nailing his 95 theses to the, the castle door, which was really the public uh, bulletin board um, in Wittenberg. Long before that day, Years before that day, Martin Luther was walking a very different path and had very different plans for his life. In fact, um, Martin Luther had sought uh, by the will of his father to become a lawyer, and that's exactly what he went to school to study. And after he had graduated in 1505 uh, from law school, he went on a little bit of a journey to go and visit his family And as he was journeying from one city to the next, he found himself trapped or caught in the middle of a a horrendous thunderstorm. It was so severe, the rain so torrential, he actually feared for his life. And he believed, he believed that maybe God had brought this very storm to actually take his life from him. And so as he was hauled up trying to navigate this storm, he famously called out to Saint Anne, who was the patron, a patron saint of miners. Uh, his father was a miner and actually owned a mine. And he vowed to the Lord, help me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. And God would call him into the monastery for a brief season. Martin Luther, from that day forward, he put aside his law degree, and he he did become a monk. And it would be years before he would say that he was truly saved by the grace of God by placing his faith in Jesus Christ, and years before those Reformation truths would grip his heart, and God would use him and them to change the trajectory, this is not an understatement, the trajectory of the world. And I think what we see here, listen, is that sometimes you are on one kind of a journey and it turns out that God actually has you on a very different kind of a journey. You think you're on one path of your own choosing and yet at the same time, God has you on a very different path. And all throughout church history, you can trace this kind of an idea, whether it's Augustine or John Calvin planning to go a particular direction only to be rerouted and find themselves on a very different path. And really, this happens to all of us at some point in our lives, maybe at multiple times in our lives. My own journey, uh, while certainly not world-changing, is definitely one of walking down one path only to find out that God would place me on a very different path. I, uh, I recently, over the past week, I ran into two old friends from high school, one I haven't seen in years, the other I haven't seen, honestly, since, since the last day of high school, which is over 20 years ago, believe it or not. Shocking to me, I know, too. 
And, uh, and, and this friend that I hadn't seen in over 20 years, he said to me, he said, you're a pastor, right? And it reminded me, listen, that this was not the path that I, believe me, that I nor any other person expected me to be on. In, in my prom, at my prom, I was voted most likely to be famous, not most likely to be a pastor, okay? <laughs> I, I thought I was walking down a particular path of sports and athletics, and God radically altered my path and took me down a path that would lead me to this very spot before you. And you have a story too, a story of being on one kind of a journey only to find out that God actually had you on a very different kind of journey. If you're a follower of Christ today, you were at one time lost and in darkness. You were traveling down the path of sin and darkness, but God had a different plan for your life and he led you down the path of truth and light and life. And our redirections, they don't usually change the course of human history, but, but they can change our lives and sometimes the lives of our family and friends and those around us. Sometimes you think you're on one kind of a journey. Maybe you're just making a job change. Maybe it's choosing another career path. Maybe it's a geographical relocation. Maybe you've come from another country. You're, you're looking at academics and education, and you chose you know, a school nearby here. Maybe you're just thinking about where you're going to move to. Where are the people nice? Where are the communities you know, beautiful? Where are they going to be placing a Chick-fil-A? And you'd, <laughs> praise the Lord, hallelujah. You thought you were on one kind of a journey, maybe going to visit family like Martin Luther. But God had you on another type of journey. You thought you were going from point A to point B, but God was trying to change you from person A to person B. And that's what we read about here in Genesis chapter 28. It is the story of being on one kind of journey only to find out that he was really on a very different journey. It's the story of Jacob journeying to, yes, find a wife, relocating uh, his home. His whole life is being changed, but God is intent on transforming his heart, his life, his purpose, his direction. Everything for this man is about to change. And I think as we read through this, we can see here three principles that change the trajectory of any person who's truly paying attention and longing to be changed by God. I want to show you first that my life changes when I believe that my biggest problem is me. That's where true change begins. Let's pick up the story in chapter 28. The word of God says this, then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, 
Jacob and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife beside the wives he had, Mathalah, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. This section here, it pulls us back into the context. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, one of the things we saw was that chapter 27, it gave us this picture of, of the family of Jacob, you know, Jacob and his brother Esau, his, his father Isaac and his mother Rebekah, and it's just an absolute total disaster. It's dysfunctional to the core. And what we see here is a result of all those kind of bizarre, manipulative, sinful family dynamics that were playing out in chapter 27. We see here that Jacob actually has to flee from his brother Esau. That's one of the driving forces behind him leaving his family, leaving all the blessings of his home life. Remember, Esau is not happy that his younger brother has stolen not only his birthright, but his blessing from his father. And Esau is so mad, he is intent on killing his brother Jacob, and so Jacob has to flee, but there's a a secondary kind of motivation behind this. He needs to leave here to find a wife from his mother's family's side. Esau has already cemented himself as being the problem child and certainly not the child of promise, aside from the way that Isaac had blessed Jacob instead of Esau. One of the things we see in the life of Esau is that he is a part of the seed of the serpent, tracing all the way back to Genesis 3.15. And we see that because he marries outside the family, and in fact, he goes and initially marries some Canaanite women. And Jacob is instructed to leave, and he's not allowed to marry the Canaanite women. They're a stench in the nostrils of his parents. But but remember, that's partially because of who they are. This is not a, a, a racial prohibition. This is a spiritual prohibition. The Canaanites... Uh, fall under the people who were cursed all the way back in Genesis chapter 9. The son of Ham, Noah's son, excuse me, was cursed for his sin against his father. The Canaanites descend directly from Ham. And what we see here before us is, is that this family life has been such a mess. Everybody has been a disaster in their own right. And in one sense, though some bear more fault than others in the equation, in the family dynamics, one of the things we're intended to see is that each person was really their own worst enemy. Isaac's favoritism and his failure to lead, Esau's rebellion, his pride and his anger, Rebekah's manipulation of not only her sons but of her husband, Jacob's lying and deceiving. And if there's one thing that's clear from this passage, listen, it's that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none who are righteous, no, not one. 
even in the chosen family of God, the people that God is going to use to bring about the the gospel, the message of salvation, they are all flawed, sinful human beings. They are unworthy and undeserving. And part of what we're supposed to see as we look at them is ourselves. We're supposed to look at them and say, I'm just like that. There's not one sin that that I've just listed off in all of these individuals that I have not committed in my life, at least at the very heart level. And we are all our own greatest problem because we are all fallen human beings under the curse of sin. Every human journey begins on a path of sin. Our tendency, however, is to believe that our biggest problem is outside of ourselves. When we look at our life and we see our situations, we're we're inclined to first blame other people for our problems, to believe that our circumstances are our biggest problems, that our lives will never truly change. Listen, they'll never truly change. You gotta get this, until we believe that we are our own biggest problem. I'm my own biggest problem and you are your own biggest problem and that's because within you lies selfishness and sin. And that helps us understand what's said here in this passage, especially in this first section. Because it reminds us, listen, that God is in the business of saving sinners, not saints. So God, he blesses Jacob uh, through Isaac. We see that here in verses 2 all the way down through verse 5. He's told he needs to go, and we see that he's going to go and find a wife from his mother's family, from Laban. And we see here that he lays this blessing on him in verse 3. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. One of the things we need to see here is that I think Isaac has recognized his own sin in the matter. He's come to grips with the fact that even though this has all come about in a tragically deceptive and sinful way, God is superintending the events that have taken place. God will take what was meant for evil and he will use it for good. And so again, I think Isaac has come to this realization that even though Jacob manipulated him and stole what was his brother's, especially culturally speaking, here he recognizes and acknowledges that God has planned this, that Jacob is going to be the son through whom all the promises given to Abraham will come to fruition. And so you see him laying on him through this blessing, again, a reiteration of the promises that have been given ultimately and first to Abraham. We cannot forget the importance of this blessing. The blessing ultimately is about the salvation of the world. It's about the rolling back of the curse of sin. We are all under the sin of Adam, suffering because of Adam's failure in the garden, but God has given a blessing that is about the lifting of the curse. And so you hear this echo, did you catch that, of Genesis 1, 28, in this blessing? Go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He's pulling him all the way back to the creation purposes of God for humanity, and he's saying, listen, this promise is about life. It's about what God intended from the beginning. And then he lays out the 
The three aspects of the Abrahamic covenant, which we have looked at multiple times, the blessing is for, uh, of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. There are three components that we look at all the time, and they're woven throughout this entire book and throughout the whole Bible, this land, seed, and blessing. You can think of it maybe like this, that this Abrahamic covenant is made up of land, lineage, and Lord. That's what these things are pointing to. Or let me give you another one, a place, progeny, and presence. Land, a place, a home, progeny, offspring, and presence. That's the blessing. Every time we talk about this, I'm inclined to, to remind us, because I, I really think there's a lot of confusion about this and, and misunderstanding about this, but anytime we come across the Abrahamic covenant, listen, the first thing you need to do is remember why it's there. It doesn't come in a vacuum, okay? So anytime you hear about land, seed, and blessing, here's what, the, here's what Moses wants you to think. He wants you to orient yourself backwards before you move forward. You get that? Okay? So, so okay, everybody say backwards. Go ahead backwards. Okay, so when you think of land, let me just give you, okay, when you think of land, what are you supposed to initially think about? He's already given us a textual indicator. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the what? The earth. That's the same word land, okay? So he's telling us that this is about God's intention from the very beginning. Land promise is about, listen, the global fulfillment of God's purpose. It's not just about this little piece of land in the Middle East. It has broader ramifications. It is about the whole earth being filled with the people of God and the glory of God. Okay, so you have to go backwards to understand the trajectory moving forward. It is about the renewal of creation. This is so important, which ultimately comes to fulfillment, listen, listen, in the new heavens and the new earth. God, in other words, he didn't make the world to be broken and defiled and ruined by sin forever. Isn't that good news? He didn't make it for that purpose. No, God made the world so that he could display his life-giving power in a world broken by his judgment because of sin. And it's pointing us, yes, backwards, but ultimately it's pointing us forward to the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and the new earth where glory will reign and righteousness will rule. But the seed promise there, progeny, it has two elements to this promise, okay? It's a twofold kind of picture that we're supposed to see. And again, it pulls us backwards to Genesis 3.15. At the very beginning, the promised seed. The one who would put an end to sin and Satan. And so what we're supposed to see first with this promise of seed, progeny, offspring, is that there is a line of descent that is going to be traced throughout the whole scriptures until we get to its ultimate fulfillment in the greater son of Abraham, the truest son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, Lord of glory. But secondly, we, we are to understand, and this is based on Galatians 3, we are supposed to see that this has a second layer to it. That it's about us. Those who have turned from our rebellion against God and placed our hope in Christ and who now believe in the God of Abraham and because of our faith in the seed, Jesus Christ, we become the offspring of Abraham, the people of God. 
The blessing again speaks, we looked at this last time, to presence. Knowing the presence of God, we will be his people, he shall be our God, he will dwell in our midst, he will dwell with us. That goes all the way back to the garden when God walked with Adam and Eve. His presence was there in a unique way and it points us all the way to the new heavens and new earth. Listen, listen, listen. Where we will see his face. Esau here, isn't it interesting, in in six through nine, he kind of has a wake-up call himself. He understands that actually he's been a part of the problem. So he's kind of grasping his own sin. Remember, he's married these Canaanite women and they've produced great bitterness in his family for his mother and his father. And he hears the promise that's, that's made, the blessing that's given to Jacob about the kind of wives he's supposed to marry. But do you see what he does? He, he, thought, he thinks he can just figure this out on his own. And so he does marry within the family. But look at the side of the family he chooses. He goes to Ishmael's side. Again, this is outside the promised line. He's taken matters into his own hand and he understands some pieces of it, but he doesn't really get the whole picture. And it's amazing what he does here. He tries to fix the problem, so he just goes and he marries more women. And I think there's some kind of an ancient Hebrew proverb, more wives, more problems, okay? It should be there. Solomon should have written it. (laughs) One wife, no problem, okay? (laughs) Many wives, many problems. But he marries in Ishmael's line, and and then, by the way, what the Lord is doing here and what Moses is indicating, it's confirming again that he's not the son of promise. He doesn't understand the way out of the curse of God, okay? Out from the curse of sin. And instead, what he does is what every human being apart from God does, he tries to muscle his way through, figure it on his own, and he ends up getting himself in more sin. Maybe you've been trying your own way out of your own problems. Maybe you've been trying to figure out your situation. Maybe you're even here and you're actually suffering in in a multitude of ways because of the consequences of your own sin, like Jacob, like Esau, like Isaac and Rebecca. Maybe your life is an absolute mess and you're just trying to figure a way out of it all. Here's the starting place for you today, okay? Just grasp this truth. Your biggest problem is you. It's you. I'm not saying you don't have any other problems. I'm not saying you're not necessarily in bad circumstances. I'm not saying you can't do things circumstantially to make your life better and easier. That's not, hear me say this. I'm not saying that's not a real thing. But what I am saying is this. This is always true from a spiritual perspective. Your biggest problem is you. Sin, remaining sin. So start there and realize that you are your biggest problem so uh, that you can, like I said, here's what that means. If you're your biggest problem, you want to know what this means? It means you cannot be your best solution, okay? I bet this is the message of the world, is it not? You figure it out. You do it. You, just, you, you can be good enough. You can be smart enough. Fix your own life. And God says, you don't understand the problem if that's the path you're taking. And I've got a very different path I want to lead you down. So maybe you're here today and God is walking you down this path where he's trying to actually show you. You you think you're making decisions that are going to be good for you, best for you. But what God is actually trying to do is walk you down a path where you see that your biggest problem is you. And that means, secondly, that your greatest need is God. Or you want to see true change in your life Recognize I'm, I am my own biggest problem. And then secondly, believe this, my greatest need is God. 
And this is such an awesome, awesome section of God's word. Look what it says, verses 10 through, uh, we'll just start reading it, and then we'll, we'll kind of pause from here, here and there. It says, Jacob left Beersheba, and he went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place, and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep, and he dreamed. Behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring, notice the global nature to this, okay? Notice the trajectory of this. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. And will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Jacob is, is going on this geographical journey, and, and it's fascinating because he's actually going back east where Abraham had left and gone west. He lays his head down on a, on a stone, which is, uh, I mean, who does that? But, but listen, this is trying to teach us something. This is trying to, to show us the impoverished place that he finds himself in. He's in the middle of the wilderness. He's in danger. It's dark. It's scary. And the only thing he has is a rock to put his head on. And you have to realize the, the, the kind of contrast that's being drawn here, right? He, he just left the lap of luxury, okay? He was living in his father's house, and his father was filthy, stinking rich. I mean, beyond our, our kind of imagination. In the ancient world, he was, he was rich, rich, and now he's out on his own, and he's got nothing to his name. There's kind of a, a parallel to this in the, in the parable of the prodigal son. Right, the son who, because of his sin, very different, but there's parallels, leaves the father's house and then finds himself utterly alone with not a penny to his name, wondering how he's going to survive, where his next meal's going to come from. And in many ways, here's Jacob, and I think it had to be going through his mind. It had to be going through his mind. Here I am, I'm all alone. And then, listen, he knows what he's done. He knows he's been sinning. He knows he's been deceptive. And now he's out in the middle of the wilderness, head on a rock for a pillow, and he dreams. And in his dream, he sees Almighty God. Probably like Martin Luther, thinking maybe God has come to destroy me. But this dream, listen, this dream will change the trajectory of this man's life. He will never be the same because of what takes place here in these moments. 
He thinks he's on one path, returning to his mother's ancestral home, fleeing his brother to find a wife, but it turns out that God has him on a very different kind of journey. It is not geographical, it is spiritual. And in verse 12, he dreams this, this astounding dream. And in this dream, he sees this, this ladder it extends from the earth into the heavens, but this, this ladder, it could be also it could be translated like a staircase. Some people think it was like a, an ancient ziggurat, which was a kind of building that kind of you know, wrapped around almost like a pyramid with kind of stairs stepping all the way up. It looked like a mountain into heaven. It's possible. And he sees coming up and down this ladder angels from heaven ascending and descending and this listen here's what we're supposed to see this is a place of divine encounter the, the angels going up and down we just think about what this means what do angels do first of all the word angel simply means a messenger being they are messengers and what we're seeing is this that they are doing the bidding of heaven to earth they're they're bringing back messages down from heaven they're, they're fulfilling the purposes of god the heavenly purposes of god on earth they're going back and forth and notice that standing at the top of the ladder this is what we're supposed to see is who none other than the lord god almighty it's possible to translate this as him standing beside the ladder. That's a very possible translation. I think it's better to understand that he's actually at the top and it indicates this sovereignty and supremacy that he is superintending the events and the affairs of human history down to the smallest, most minute detail. And, and he's speaking specifically here to Jacob, this man who's all alone, fearful for his life. For his life. He has nothing but a rock for a pillow and what God is saying to this man in this moment of time is this, listen, I am above it all. I see all your circumstances. I see all your troubles. I see all your sin. I see all your problems. I see your past. I see your future. I am sovereign over everything. There's not one part of your life, listen, listen, there's not one part of your life that God doesn't know about, that God doesn't see, that God doesn't care about, that God is not actively involved in. He's over it all. And this moment of divine encounter is also demonstrating, listen, that there is a connection between heaven and earth. They are, they are different realms for sure, but they are not disconnected. They're actually very much intimately tied together. There is a supernatural realm, right? There, there are principalities and powers behind the earthly authorities, the governments, individuals, kings of this earth. There is a supernatural world that is actively engaging in the affairs of humanity. And yes, some of them for evil purposes, but there is a God. Listen, I love Martin Luther said this, right? The devil is still the Lord's devil. He's got him on a leash, God is over it all. God is intimately involved with his creation. He is not distant from the events that take place on this earth and in your life. This is a revelation and a communication all by God's initiation. Think about this revelation that he is experiencing in this moment. God is bringing to Jacob something of himself. 
And then God communicates to him that this ladder means that God can come down to man and perhaps maybe even man could get to God. Do you remember another time in Genesis when there were people who wanted to build something and wanted the top of it to reach into the heavens? Does that ring a bell at all? Moses is intentionally wanting us to think back to Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. A man-made tower, probably a ziggurat, which is why there's maybe an association here, but a man-made tower where man is trying to displace God or somehow, at the very least, get to God with his own power and his own wisdom and his own strength, his own efforts. But God here, instead, is graciously giving to Jacob what the people of Babel sought by their own strength and wisdom. He is telling him that there is a way to access God, but it's different from man's way. It is not a human way. It is a divine way. That this is the way of salvation, is it not? Where God graciously gives to his people what the world desires and seeks by its own wisdom and power, but what they can never get. And in verse 13 here, there's a kind of very skillful and intentional way that this is arranged to indicate again that it is the Lord who is above it all. The focus is intended to narrow from this ladder and the angels to the one who stands above it all. The central point of this vision is God himself. One commentator says this, that Yahweh presided over the commerce of Jacob's life. God was directing everything. There was heavenly activity in this desolate place on Jacob's behalf. And God here himself, he reiterates the covenant promises, making it clear that, yes, Jacob, I will use you. In verse 14, again, we see this picture of these promises that is that there's this global reality. One day, one day it will be filled in the new heavens and new earth. And then so Jacob, even though he'd never see the fulfillment of these promises in his own life, he was like Abraham. He would become like Abraham who believed that even if he died without seeing the fulfillment of the promises, even if he never got to touch the land himself physically in this life, he believed with all of his heart that one day God would raise him to life and that he would walk in the land with all those who have faith in the promise promised seed of Abraham. And then look at verse 15 for a moment. Look at the the picture of God's presence here. This is so amazing. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. You, You can't outrun my presence. You can't Leave my presence. I will be with you wherever you are, and I will bring you back to this land. I know you're going to be, it's going to be 20 years, 20 years, and I can imagine that over 20 years, here he is, Jacob, in, in, under Laban's household. I think he probably thought about this promise often. God, when's the time? When's the time? When are you going to bring me home, Lord? For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I mean, Christian, how awesome 
is it that you and I can cling to these very same promises that Jesus himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you to the end of the age. It's as if God's saying to Jacob, and and I hope you hear this today, if if you're in Christ today, I hope you hear this, as if God's saying, listen, I I see everything going on in your life. I know know everything going on. I know it all, and I've I've got you. I've got you. I've got you. Just notice that he, he didn't come down to him and tell him that he needed to fix himself. Did you catch that? Notice that he doesn't come down and even tell him right now that he needs to change. You, you know, Jacob, you know what? Here I am, and you just need to be a better person. You need to fix your life. You need to clean yourself up. No, he doesn't do that. He gives him this divine encounter to show him that what he needs is God. Doesn't need to do anything. He doesn't need to fix himself. Doesn't need to heal himself. Doesn't need to mend himself. Doesn't need to clean himself up. What he needs is God. And this is the the Emmanuel principle, if we can call it that, that we keep seeing throughout this book, right? Emmanuel, the very words we celebrate every Christmas, right? God with us. God wants you to believe this is true for you today. God wants to listen. He wants to do so much for you and in you, but he must first be everything to you. Don't miss this. You cannot want the blessings of God more than you want the God of blessings. And this is so central because we can so easily swing into wanting things from God instead of wanting God himself. And whatever you believe you need, by the way, more than God, is your God. It's what you worship. And I I love this picture because really what we're being told here again is that this transforming event in Jacob's life is all of God's grace. Jacob the deceiver, who was alone and suffering due to his own sin, who deserved nothing from God. Actually, it's worse than that. He did deserve something from God. He deserves the wrath of God. He's a liar, he's a deceiver, he's a cheater, he's a blasphemer. He does not deserve to inherit the kingdom of God and yet God comes and he meets him in this moment and he promises him the very presence of God and the very provision of God. His greatest need and his only need is being met through God himself. Jacob was not seeking God but God was seeking Jacob. You know, I'm convinced that what we need more than anything today is a vision of a holy and loving God who is sovereign over all of life and infinitely gracious towards sinners. A God who loves us, who seeks us, and who offers us what we are desperately seeking and what we desperately need. He offers us himself. And do you see the response of Jacob here? In verses 16 and 17, he awakes from his sleep, and he says three things, three things. The Lord is in this place. Secondly, this is an awesome place. And third, this is a gateway. Meaning, listen, meaning God has visited me here. This is a gateway into heaven through which God has revealed himself to me, and I have encountered him. I have met with God here. I have met with God here. And you know, this is, this, is a, this is important just to maybe just pause and just to contemplate for a moment together because those, those words are, 
almost verbatim what I pray happens here together with us every time we meet on a Sunday. We are not here, listen, this is really important, we are not here to be entertained. This, these, these are not, listen, this, this, is, this should not be an interruption to your life or an add-on to your calendar, okay? Your, your life is not, in, church is not intended to be something your calendar revolves, uh, or, or your, 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 your calendar revolves around, maybe that's the way it is actually, sorry. Church is something your calendar is supposed to revolve around, not the other way around, Okay? But so many of us are so distracted with, with lesser things, not bad things, not even sinful things, but lesser things. And so the, the time we meet together as the family of God is oftentimes not prioritized the way it should be. But listen, here's what we need to understand. God is in this place. This is not trivial. We are not here to entertain you, although I hope this isn't boring, okay? If you're, like, you're like, Ian, the preaching is boring. Okay, the fastest way you can fix that is pray for your preacher, okay? Pray, this is your fault, not my fault. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we're, we're not here to be entertained. We're not here to, to, listen, we're not here to find simply some quick hit emotional experience, okay? That's not why we're here. Although I hope your affections and your desires are stirred within you every time you sit under the word of God and worship with the people of God. We're not here simply to consume information, although I hope you do learn things and that you're growing in your knowledge and understanding of the word of God. But, but listen, if that's why we're here, if any of those reasons are why we're here, we are missing the whole point. We are here, church. This, I cannot emphasize this strongly enough. We are here to have a divine encounter with the almighty God of the universe, the one who made heaven and earth. The one who possesses the power to make us new and to change our lives. The prayer and goal every Sunday, listen, is that we say with Jacob, surely God is in this place. How awesome is this place? This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And I just want you to know, this can't be manufactured, okay? It can't be, man it can't be manufactured. It can't be created by human effort or wisdom. This is a supernatural reality that must be wrought by the Holy Spirit. It has to be. It's a miracle of grace that we must, listen, we must ask for and we must aim at. You say, how do we aim at this as the people of God? Here's how we do this. We aim at this by opening God's word, his revelation of himself, and praying for God's spirit to move in power. I, I want to encourage, if I give you one application from this, it would be so simple and so easy, and yet I think we neglect it because we're not thinking about it. And I would just say this, pray with me every week. Pray with me every week. And some of you are so faithful to do this. Pray that the Spirit of God shows up every Sunday when we open his word and the truth goes forward that God would move in power. He would grip our hearts. He would open our eyes to behold wonderful truths and things in his law that we would see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Pray, pray for your own heart that you walk into this place, not just listen to check a box or to fulfill some kind of a, a, a commitment to yourself or someone else. Pray for your own heart as you walk into this place. God, meet with me. 
Change me. Show me your glory. Our lives change. Listen, when we believe, when we believe that our greatest need is God and nothing else will do. And lastly, my life changes when I believe that my only hope is Jesus. Jacob, he responds to this revelation in verses 18 through 22. It says, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set, up, set it up for a pillar. And he poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and, I will, and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. I want you to notice first that, that Jacob responds in worship. This is the frequent response of those who have encountered God in some kind of a divine um, revelation, and it is the right response. And then he, he names the place. This, again, this happens so frequently. It's kind of a way of memorializing this place, of, of remembering what God had done. And he changes the name from Luz to Bethel. And Bethel in the Hebrew simply means a Bethel, a Elohim, which means house of God. His vow to God flows from his lips, and he asks for several things he vows really three things. It's possible, by the way, to see this as negative. Some, some commentators view this as negative where he's kind of creating a condition upon God or he's bargaining with God. If that's the case, it's certainly wrong. We, sh we should never barter with God. God, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. That's a dangerous play. Do not work that play. But, listen, I actually think this is positive. I think that, that if God, all he's doing is simply petitioning God for what God has already promised him. It's almost his way of recognizing, God, you said you'd do this for me, you said you'd do this for me, and it's his way of stating it as a belief. And then what we find here is his commitment to God in light of God, what God has done to commit himself to Jacob. And there's three kind of aspects to this vow. You can break it down like this. It's been broken down like this before. Uh, devotion, dedication, and commemoration. Or if you want three C's, because I like that better. Uh, consecration, commitment, and commemoration. So, so you see here that he binds himself to true worship of the true God. He takes uh, the stone, a pillow, and he turns it into a stone pillar. He, he takes it from being a bed to a, a place of worship. There is this devotion to the Lord that God wants from each one of us when we encounter him. Don't miss this. This is not just about Jacob. This is the kind of response that God wants from you and he wants from me. He wants you wholly devoted to him, the true and living God, in worship. And you see this commitment, this dedication 
I'll come back here and this will be a sacred house. He's looking down the road and he's believing that God is going to do what he said he's going to do and and knowing that God will be faithful. He's saying, God, I I will come back and I will do for you what my heart longs to do for you. And then you have this commemoration where he gives this tithe anticipating God's blessing. Remember, at this point, he has nothing. So this is anticipatory. He's looking ahead to God's provision, and he's saying, God, I'm going to give back to you a tenth. That's what the word tithe means. Remember, we've already seen this with Abraham and Melchizedek. Later, the Mosaic law will require it of the people of God. Actually, it's going to require several tithes, more than just a tenth, a multiple tenths, and different ways. And again, when we look at this, but let me just kind of just expand on this idea of the tithe for a moment. This is one of the signs that God has changed you. This is what this is supposed to evidence for us. We're supposed to see that Jacob is a different man, and part of the way we see that is, is his relationship to this world, to the money, the stuff, and the possessions is fundamentally and radically changed. Now listen, you can, you can fool people. You can give in a way that appears righteous and holy but is really selfishly motivated, but listen, uh, true hearts that have been gripped by the grace of God, they view their things differently, and it is evidence of the power of God at work within them. They recognize everything they have is a gift from God. Everything they have, everything they are has been given to them by God. They deserve none of it. And so what they do, right, this is why we give to the work of of the ministry. We say, God, you've given all this to me. God, I'm so thankful for all you've, you've given your own son for me. What can I not give back to you in return in order to advance your work, your kingdom, your gospel in this world? And so there's this, this loosening of the grip on things and freeing it, including our own hearts, to be given fully to God. It's really an act of worship, which again is, is one of the reasons we, we constantly encourage you to give as an act of worship, which is what Paul says in the New Testament. His response seems to indicate a, a spiritual turning point in his life, a transformation of both person and purpose. God is meeting Jacob where he is at. I want you to see this because we love, we hear this all the time. God will meet you where you're at. God will meet you where you're at. God will meet you where you're at. And by the way, I want to, I want to emphasize this. Some of you, maybe you walked in here today and like your, your life's a mess. And you're like, can God, really, can God really take me as I am? The answer, according to the Bible, is absolutely. He wants to take you the way you are. Listen, but he does not want to leave you the way you are. He wants to take you in order to change you just like he's done here for Jacob. And Jacob is on this journey of true change and transformation. We're going to see it in the, the weeks ahead, in the chapters ahead. But what's true for him is true for us. We are in need of God's power to change and transform us. You know, let me just, you, you realize this? It is easier to try to change the world than it is to change your own heart. God must do it. Maybe your story is a lot like Jacob's. Maybe it's like Israel, who was always so undeserving, always straying, so rebellious. You're like, what do I do? What do I do if God has arranged a divine encounter with me? Well, here's what you do. You recognize that your hope, it cannot be in yourself. 
It can't be in your wisdom. It can't be in your power. It can't be in your efforts. You can't uh, be in, uh, you can't change your, it can't be in changing your circumstances. It can't be in some 12-step program as useful as that may practically be in some ways in your life. Your problem is not skin deep, it's heart deep. You need a new heart, a new spirit within you, a new life, and that is why your only hope is Jesus. God is willing to move heaven and earth to save and to change each one of us. In fact, he is willing to come from heaven to earth to do it. And if you're, if you're really familiar with your Bible, you might, you might recall that this passage actually shows up one other time in the Bible, in the New Testament. And you don't have to turn there. I just want you to listen. In John chapter 1, um, when Jesus shows up on the scene, Jesus, God in flesh, he encounters this man named Nathaniel. And in John 1, just, just listen, verse 47, it says that Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now just remember for a moment here, what Jesus is doing is connecting this man, Nathaniel, to this story in the book of Genesis by the simple word deceit, which is the very name of Jacob. And he's pointing to the transforming power. I want you to catch this. The transforming power that Jacob experienced when he encountered the Lord. And now Nathaniel, this man who's being associated with Jacob, is about to, is in the process of, listen to this, having a divine encounter with Jesus Christ, God Almighty. And he says this to him. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Remember the Lord standing above it all, knowing it all. How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? And then it says this, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And in this divine encounter, Jesus claims for himself this divine imagery from Jacob's life. That dream was about an opening, a gateway. It was about God's presence coming down to man so that man could be lifted up to God. Jesus says, I am the stairway to heaven. I am, right, John will say, the door, the gate. Jesus will say, I am the house of God. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will rebuild it. Jesus will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus opened the way by giving his life for us. My biggest problem is me, and here comes Jesus who takes my sin upon him, the Lamb of, God, Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. He paid our debt in sin, of sin in full. 
And he did that because my greatest need is God. He, 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 listen, we were made for God's presence. We were made to know him, to love him, to enjoy him forever. And because of his death and resurrection, we now by faith in him have access to God. And because of the exaltation of Jesus, it's even better. God sends his spirit not just to be with us, but to be in us. We, the people of God, the temple of God, we have the privilege of knowing God and encountering his divine presence among us. And he has come to us to comfort us, to give us confidence that he will never leave us or forsake us. But do not miss this. He has come to change us into the very image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's time to change. So let us be committed to him, consecrated to him, and let us celebrate him, all we are and all we have for him, for truly our hope is only Jesus. He has done it all. May he be our all in all. Father, we pray that you would make this so in our hearts. We see how sinful we are, how needy we are of you, God, and when we see, Lord, once again, I trust in such a fresh way that our only hope is Jesus. And that, God, you have come from heaven to earth. That, Jesus, you are the, the ladder, the staircase. And that we have access into the heavenly places, into your very presence because you have come for us and you have given your life for us. We pray even now, Lord, that our hearts would be stirred afresh with love for you, with affection for you. God, I pray that you would help us to be changed more and more into the image of Jesus, our Savior. Would you do that spirit of God within us? Would you convict us? Would you encourage us? Would you help us? We're so thankful for your grace that has met us even afresh Today, together, we believe that you are in this place, that this is the, the house of God, and we pray now that you would receive our highest praise, for you and you alone are worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.